long, long, long ago, as long ago as we can say is long ago and still be in our time, a man and a woman had everything they could wish for. They had, they had all of the gifts. They had quiet walks in the morning, quiet walks in the evening. They had all they could eat. They had good work to do that kept them constantly learning, constantly laughing as they worked, having a clear purpose. They had wonder, unfolding wonder at a world of beauty that was unfolding as they were enjoying it. Always more. And most of all, they had love from their maker, love from their father who was with them. They wanted, they wanted nothing more than to be with him. And that's what they had. They wanted nothing more than to honor Him and to receive His delight in them. As they worked together and He said, come, come look at this, look at this, this, I have this for you to do. And when they did it, they received His pleasure and His joy in them. It didn't even occur to them that doing anything other than what He wanted would be worthwhile because it wouldn't. Of course, this is the best thing, what he leads us to. That it didn't even make sense that they would they want to try something else. That is, until a voice at their elbow whispered and introduced a new idea. See how good God is? See how glorious he is? See his beauty and his purity. See his light. See how all of creation looks to him and takes joy in him and pleasure. That could be you. That could be you. You could be just like that. That temptation, we know, is Satan's temptation. In that temptation, Satan introduced self-love as an option to rival the love for God. Love for the Creator, the Father, the friend. That's the thing that had turned Satan from God. So it was according to his nature that he, he offered that as a, an option. He offered it to the man and the woman. Self-love. And they took it. And they ate it. And their eyes were open. And suddenly, they, they understood good. And they also knew the rejection of good. This was new to them. They knew good and they knew what it was to say no to good. There was now a gulf between them and God. He was good and they had chosen evil. So they knew good and evil. And they knew where they stood. So when the Son of God, fast forward millennia, when he came among the rebels to rescue them, he came not only to deal with the sin, not only to deal with the rebellion, but he also came to restore right loves. 
that, that the affections that had been rejected, the, the right ordering of their loves that had been there in the beginning, that was part of his restoration. He came to give back to human beings a love for self and for others that came through a love for God. So that the value and the worth of what we give to ourselves and the value and worth of what we give to others and everything else would come according to the value assigned by the maker. The, so do you see what I'm saying? The love that he was restoring was, it was love for other things as well, but it was right. It had the value, the measure that God had assigned to it. And so this would mean a radical readjustment of self-love. Here's one way Jesus reframed things. This is how he said it. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we believe Jesus, if we believe what he says, then we had better admit self-love is a hindrance to our reformation. It's rooted deeply in our flesh. Every one of us, there's no, nobody out here is excused from this. Because it's deep in our flesh. And it stands opposed to the new life that God has given. He's given us by His Spirit. And He is giving us. And so if we're honest, this, that's the hard bit, I think. Most of our emotional life, most of our emotional energy goes towards making plans for our life with self-love in mind and then rationalizing and justifying both the plans that we're making and the choices we've already made. Selfishly motivated. We work and we work and we work to justify and twist so that we can say that we're good and that we did right. How much thought, how much agonies of, of heart and soul go into that. that? The thing that I want, it's actually right. The thing that I did, yes, it, it's got to be right because I have to be good. And so we justify and we justify and the old lie is always at work. The, that first lie, the primal lie, I'm, I am good. I am godlike. I am that. My desires are best. Justifying and justifying the action that emerged from self-love. But we also know the truth. The truth. The resurrection life of God in Christ. The life that that we have as new creations, the life that's been given to us, 
requires the rejection of that line of thought. It requires the rejection of justifying our choices. Jesus says, if anyone would come to me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then and the love that he will give us, the love he'll give his followers, it's a new love. It, it wasn't there. This is part of what being a new creation is, is that there is a love in a renewed person that wasn't there. It's called agape. Agape love, that means uh, it's divine love. It's self-sacrificial love. It's the love that looks to the good and the interest of others, not self. Prioritizes love for God and love for others. It's, that's radically different. It's a radical restoration. It seeks the honor of God. The Apostle John echoes Jesus here. He says, Beloved, by this we know and we understand agape love. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now to 2 Corinthians. Friends, part of what the Apostle Paul is doing when he sent that clear gospel message and the clear rebuke to the churches of Corinth, it's the letter we don't have. It's the letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Part of what he was doing was to see whether the Corinthians would respond with self-love or with the love that God had given them. What was ruling them? Would they respond according to the flesh or would they respond according to the Spirit? Would they respond like Esau? Or would they respond like a renewed person? If they responded in the flesh, if the churches of Corinth had come with self-defense, if they had rationalized their, their rejection of godly authority, if they had said, thanks but no thanks, Paul, We'll go our own way. There would have been no good in him coming to them. He would not have come to them. Because they had, if that had happened, their hearts would have been fixed on self-love. And a heart fixed on self-love is not in a condition to repent. That's something to hold on to here. A heart fixed on self-love is not in a condition to repent. To stand on the assertion of your rights, your rightness, your goodness, keeps you from asking God for change. To stand in assurance of your own rightness keeps you from asking God to make the changes in you that he wants to make. And so Paul would know if they were ready for him to visit by the way they responded to the gospel and specifically, the rebuke of their sin. If they, if they insisted on holding on to the sinful position they had taken, their hearts were not ready to make a change. They were not ready for repentance. So what Paul says in this passage, chapter 7 is where we're looking, is so important for faithful Christian living. It's not just about the churches of Corinth. This passage is so important, it's worth spending several weeks on. 
Paul, the founder of the church in Corinth, apostle to the Gentiles, he rejoices because of the way they responded according to the Spirit and not according to self-love. We are given a model of how to respond to the gospel, how to respond to rebuke when we, are, we become aware that we are in a sinful position. Verse 4, he is filled with joy. We know this is a model. He's proud of them. His children, he's comforted. He's overflowing with joy. He knows that he can speak with clarity and boldness to them now because they're ready to hear it. So how do we know they've responded in the Spirit? How do we know that they're ready for change? As we read this passage, in verses 5 to 7, he kind of sets the stage for how he heard the news, how he heard about their response. He was worried. He was, he was in knots. He'd come from Ephesus where he, would, where he was based and he'd stopped in northern Greece, Macedonia, on his way. And he was parked in Macedonia. He was waiting in agonies because he wanted so much to hear that they were going to walk forward as Christians. This church that he'd poured his love into, they were actually going to be Christians. They were going to continue in the truth. Everything, as far as the church there was concerned, everything was on the line. Was this going to happen? How they would respond would tell him if the church in Corinth would endure. That's a rough place. I mean, if you, parents, you know what this is like. You've poured into a child, particularly when the parent or when the child grows up and you're waiting, you're worried. How will they walk? So when Titus came, he was overjoyed. He was comforted. He was comforted. He was comforted. Four times comfort appears in one sentence. Full of comfort. What had comforted him? What, it, what was it that he heard from Titus that took him from hand-wringing to just rejoicing, filled with joy? What assured him that there's real faith here? Verse 7, he says, this is what Titus told me. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. He goes on, he rejoices in verse 9. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. is such an important distinction. What the Spirit of God gives us is conviction of sin. Jesus told, there's one of the last things Jesus told the apostles before he went to death. The Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate, the Paraclete that he's going to send will bring conviction of sin. What conviction of sin is, is honesty about our need for help and the mercy of God. 
It's clear-minded honesty about where we actually are. Conviction, when it comes from the Spirit, we know it's from the Spirit because conviction from God also comes with the assurance that you can trust Him with everything. It points to a clear assessment of, of the state of things, the need for help, the, the wickedness. But it comes also with assurance. Now give me everything. You can trust me. This is what the lies of the enemy are working against. Our enemy works full time on trying to disrupt this message of the Spirit. And he works with the, the raw material that we've got, self-love. Because self-love claims that you are the Savior. That God cannot be trusted with your life. Certainly other people are not trustworthy. Certainly you cannot make yourself vulnerable with other people. Only because only you can be trusted. And so when the voice of the Holy Spirit comes to us, urging us to give up everything, give up shifting blame, give up pointing, it was her, it was him. Give up pleading your extenuating circumstances. If this hadn't happened, and if I hadn't had this happen, and if I hadn't been brought up like this, Spirit says, just cast yourself. Just cast yourself on the goodness and the mercy of God. Take responsibility. Honestly, own up to your passions. Own up to your desire for control, to be the ruler. Own up to your reckless self-defense. And so as the Spirit's urging this honesty and urging this repentance, the self becomes desperate, desperately says, you cannot trust God. What might happen? Just imagine what could happen to you if you let go of control. Let me tell you about two young men, um, neither of whom you know, I'll just say that. Uh, I knew them at different times, but they were the same age at the times that I knew them. Both of them struggled with alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, uh, bad relational influences, you know, bad company. Both of them claimed Jesus Christ. Both of them found themselves embarrassingly exposed for some wicked acts. And they were grieved. They were grieved. They cried. I met with them and met with them. They, they cried. 25-year-old men. They wanted change. They wanted things to be different. They both, both of them. They had hopes and dreams for a better life. If they, could, if they could shed these things, their baggage. But what was spiritually going on in each of them was radically different. And it, it is the difference that Paul is talking about between worldly grief and godly grief. So one of them was willing to go through some steps toward change, including meet with me, 
and confession, he was willing to admit some destructive behavior, um, willing to admit consequences. But when it came to rejecting those things, he wouldn't. Some of them, yeah, he, he could reject those. There were a few. When it came to accepting the need for God's help and forgiveness, something held him up. Forgiveness. And then when we discussed uh, what he might do to make things right, how he could restore, he had various reservations. I'm with... In the realm of willing, I'm willing to do this. I'm unwilling to do that. He had conditions. They were his conditions. The other guy, remarkably different. And whenever I read this passage, when I read verse 11, I think of this young man. His name was Matt. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. This guy cast himself on the mercy of God. The, this, the earnestness of his repentance. It was so evident by the absence of self-protection. The absence of self-protection. Because he had accepted that whatever rationalizations and justifications that he could marshal, because they, they, they were, there were reasons he had fallen into this path. Whatever he could bring to his own defense, the bottom line was he could not save or change himself. How he got here, he accepted, was beside the point. This is where he was. He could not save himself. He needed God. And so then that desire to be right with God, that, that led to an unrestrained eagerness to do whatever was right. What, whatever I have to do, I will do. And so this, this is the marshalling, the ordering of all the passions, bringing all the will towards doing what was right and good with no thought to self-preservation. This guy became willing for... This is remarkable. He became willing for anyone to know what had happened, for anyone to know what he had done. In fact, it, he thought if, if his exposure would help anyone else avoid that path. That's what he wanted. He was ready to get in front of a chapel of 3,000 people and make it known so that even one person might avoid what he'd experienced. That's the absence of self-love. That's the death of self-love out of love for others and a love for God. Because what he was experiencing as he acknowledged his sin and he felt the Spirit's conviction, was comfort. It was real conviction. He felt the comfort from the Spirit and freedom. In a word, that's what he was experiencing, freedom. 
Because the, the conviction of the Spirit speaks both of those things. Clear assessment of sin and an offer of complete freedom. That's how you know the voice of the Spirit rather than the voice of the enemy which says, you mustn't let this be known because if you do, they will hate you and God will reject you and this is who you are and you always be this way. They're so different. Once we begin to know the voice of God, we, we will get an appetite for that, that voice that offers freedom. So my one young friend, he felt plenty of grief. He felt plenty of remorse. The tears, they weren't fake tears. They were real tears. But they flowed from his self-love. He grieved for himself. And he grieved because of embarrassment. And he wanted change so things would go better for him. But giving up control, godly grief, giving up control and trusting God with his life, trusting God unreservedly, that was not his desire. So my other friend had godly grief. It flowed from the gift of God, from agape. It was love that God had given to him that he might offer back to God. And he found that he wanted more than anything else to know and love God. More than anything else to be right with God. And he wanted that more than he cared for himself. The Apostle Paul knew how the Spirit of God works. So that is why he sent that letter. He sent a strong gospel letter stating how the Corinthians had left it. And he knew that if they were listening to the Word, then the Word of God would do its work. The Word of God does the work of God. The Spirit takes God's Word and brings conviction. Uh, next week we'll deal with some other parts, other aspects to this, but I'll conclude with this. One of the reasons that God sets apart clergy, gives pastors, is so that there's always someone you can go to. There's always someone that's prepared, ready, to go to when the Spirit brings conviction. And I, certainly, you can go to any trustworthy Christian, anyone in the family of faith who's trustworthy. But the Lord ordered His church to guarantee that there was someone to speak to when He was doing His work of offering change. To hear your repentance and to assure you of the gospel and assure you, assure you of his acceptance. So we are here. I also want to say that we believe that when the word is preached, the spirit is at work. So that's why we have people who are available to pray during the communion time. That should the Lord convict you, should the spirit say, make it known, there's freedom here. Don't wait. We don't want you to wait. 
If you wait, rationalization will kick in. Respond. We're ready for response. The Lord is ready to receive that and to assure you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you offer because of Jesus, because of forgiveness guaranteed for us at the cross. Lord, we ask for your merciful work, that you'd work in the places of our resistance. We ask that you give us confidence that we can cast ourselves on you. Would you display your character before us that we would see you as you are. In the name of Jesus, amen.